Greetings, listeners, and welcome to another episode of Compare and Campaign. I am your host, as always, Tom Lando, and with me, as always, is my co-host and co-DM, McGill. And we are recording episode 174 today on the 20th of December, 2023. Man, Christmas is right around the corner. It's coming up, but... uh... The great irony, of course, is that this episode will be released after Christmas. That is a that is a truth. I'm never uh, I'm I'm always somewhat aware of the uh, space of time between when we record and when we play, but it, it varies. And we and do, we don't so, often uh, do like themed things anyway. But I did a Christmas thing last episode, knowing that that would be published in time for the holiday. Oh, that's exciting. Way to go. <laughs> Thanks. Ah, um, 2023, what? Tom. It's almost over. It's when, this, when this episode comes out, like this, I guess this is going to be the last episode of the year, isn't it? Yeah, or the first of the new year. Maybe, I guess. But uh, yeah, looking back at 2023, do you have any thoughts on on this year uh, when it comes to RPGs, your own or otherwise? Um, I mean, for role playing games in general, it was uh, this was the year of the big D and D in crisis, right? That's right. I was baiting you to to mention that because one of the things I do want to talk about on this episode, we don't have to do it now, but uh, I found this article on Gizmodo. The headline is, 2023 should have been D&D's best year until it wasn't. They did a little roundup of everything that happened with D&D specifically over the course of 2023. And man, oh man, what a what a crazy ride it has been. Should have been the year of release for Planescape, and instead nobody cared. Should have been um, the year of release for the deck of many things, and oops, it's been delayed. This, uh, you know, this has been a year of things coming out and everybody being like, who cares? Uh, Starfield was another big one. Yeah, true, um, true. You know, you got a big Bethesda game and for the first time in Bethesda's history, it feels like people were just like, who cares? And, you know, um, uh, I, I speculate that that is in part sort of. because of D&D. Ah, and... Possibly because of Baldur's Gate that's 3. That's right, Baldur's Gate 3, getting rave reviews. I Somebody gave me a copy, I can't wait to dive into it. And uh, yeah, I, I feel like it stole all of Starfield's thunder. Yeah, you can't cast speak with animals and talk to any animal in Starfield, can you? I haven't actually played Starfield. I haven't played yeah, Baldur's Gate 3. Say. You can do that in Baldur's Gate 3? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah, all the animals have, like, voices if you cast speak with animals and talk to them. Oh, my God, sounds amazing. So you can talk to just random rats in dungeons. You can talk to cats in the Baldur's Gate. I got to finish. uh, I feel like I'm, like, maybe two-thirds or three-quarters of the way done. Marvel's Midnight Suns, I want to finish that up. That Ah. that is also an RPG, a tactical RPG. And uh, then it's into Baldur's Gate 3. It's going to eat up my winter. Yeah, um, that, uh, 
Midnight Suns, I mean, I haven't gotten into that one. I mean, I I was looking at my year in review on Steam today, and I mean, apparently the game I played the most this year was uh, XCOM 2. But I can tell you for a fact that my last save that I made in XCOM 2 was called something like, Okay, God, I get it. Fuck. <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah, I just got frustrated and... Uh, yeah, I I stepped away from it. Not to go off on too much of a tangent, but I mean, I guess we're talking about XCOM, Firaxis games, and uh, Firaxis also did Midnight Suns. I really want them to make a new XCOM game with the combat system from Midnight Suns because I find it less frustrating than XCOM. You know, the, the cliche or the meme with XCOM is that you can have a 99% chance to hit and you still miss somehow, you, you get that 1% miss chance. But uh, with Midnight Suns, instead of doing like percentage to hits like that, they have like a whole deck building thing. Each of your units has a deck of cards with different like attacks and abilities. And then you use that to plan out your moves in the, the tactical arena, as opposed to dealing with like random no number generators like that. Yeah, there's something about XCOM 2 where I was becoming frustrated with just, like, the sort of endless, like, I was at a point where I was just trying to, like, finish off my tech trees, I think, to, like, to go into the end, like, really beefed up, but the longer I spent doing that, the more, like, random, like, attacks started showing up that I had to deal with. And it was just getting to be tedious for me having to, like, clean up these random attacks where, like, you know, I got to save people and whatnot, yeah, yeah. you know? Definitely get that. It would it would be nice to just, like, wrap up all my things and then click play on the final mission and then just do it rather than have an unknown number of, like, battles to get through just to clean up my tech tree. I seem to be in the minority of people who actually really liked XCOM Chimera Squad. And that's one of the reasons I liked it is I just felt like it was really tight. There wasn't all this, this like time spent dealing with all, you know, random attacks. Like you said, the, the, the progression of the missions is a bit more linear and it's more about just like getting you into the next battle. Should be interesting to see when uh tactical breach wizards comes out. When's that coming out? I don't know. It's uh, it's in development, ah. but it's the next. It, it's it's gonna be like one of these types of games, you know. Well, I'm down with that, and uh, yeah, big ups to Midnight Suns too. Um. So, do we want to go do my side of things? My side of things is just a big old boss fight tonight. Before we do that, why don't we just cover like a couple of other key points from this Gizmodo article, since we're already talking about like 2023, the D&D &D year in review and all that. There isn't much else to cover here. But yeah, sure. um, another reason that this should have been the all time best year for D&D, &D, of course, Honor Among Thieves came out. There was a new D&D &D movie for the first time in over 20 years. That's true. And... Uh, I think we were both 
uh, I wouldn't say leak, like like medium positive on it, right? Like you give it a yeah, thumbs up, not a thumbs down. I called it delightful. Delightful, yeah, exactly. I I enjoyed it as well. It was nice. It was a fun time. Just definitely lighthearted fun. And uh, as this article notes, though, like it wasn't a huge critical or box office success. It did okay, um, but since then it's sort of developed a cult following. And uh, I really, you see that online. I've seen a lot of those uh, D&D memes, especially uh, where uh, Chris Pine's illusion goes wrong and his, his face starts warping all weird. I've been seeing that used in a lot of memes as well. So uh, that's got me wondering if this is going to have more legs than I anticipated. Maybe we will get a second D&D movie with that cast or with those showrunners. Um, and, uh, yeah. And then of course the problem though, was that there are all these big things. There's a D and D movie. There is Baldur's Gate three, the promise of these, these new products, uh, like the deck of many things I mentioned being delayed though. And then it all just kind of started falling apart because of the OGL thing, which we covered as it was happening. Hard to believe that that was like back in January that that happened. Can you believe that was like a year ago now? Oh my god! And then I thought it was more recent than that. Yeah, and then Wizards backtracking and uh, like apologizing, and they'd already burned some bridges, and it was all uh, Pathfinder was like, "Well, we're just completely finding a way to separate ourselves from from that in our new edition." And then there was also the the controversy where they were using AI generated artwork on the covers of their source books. You remember that one? Man, I didn't know about that. Yeah, Glory of the Giants was using AI-generated artwork and caught a lot of heat. And then Wizards of Coast uh, of the Coast uh, did like the same thing where they apologized and they said we're banning all AI art in our books from now on. Um, so is the Glory of the Giants cover they have currently AI art or that I don't know. It doesn't mention it in this article. I, I, if I had to guess, they they probably yeah. Here we go. A re-release of the book to remove AI generated assets. So I'm guessing that is no longer the case. And uh, and the most recent thing, most recent bit of news. Um, I don't know. Did you hear? Did you hear any any recent news from this very month, Tom? Uh, was it about the Pathfinder thing? No, Hasbro just laid off a thousand people. Oh, yeah, I did hear about that. Fifth of the workforce, a whole bunch of D&D employees got laid off. What a, what a weird year of highs and lows for Dungeons and Dragons. Um, you know, pretty good movie, amazing game, uh, and... Then a whole lot of controversy and ending the year with a bunch of layoffs. Jeez. I feel like I always say this. I know I've mentioned it so many times on our podcast, but like this really does make me wonder what the future holds for Dungeons and Dragons. Uh, It's it's like hugely popular. Something the Gizmodo article also mentions that I had kind of forgotten about is its current popularity uh, was owed in part to a huge boom that it got because of the pandemic. Everybody started playing at home. And then in the midst of that as well was Stranger Things Season 4, 
which had like a real big focus on D&D with the D&D club, the Hellfire Club. Now the Hellfire Club t-shirts are, you know, they're kind of like a meme among RPG nerds. And of course, the villain was named Vecna. So like, like D&D lore was was really at the forefront again for a while there. And and uh, now we're between seasons of Stranger Things. And we're getting all these like stumbling blocks. But I, I just find myself wondering what the future holds. Maybe, Tom, maybe in 2024, nobody will be talking about D&D. They'll all be talking about Palladium Ninja Turtles. Man, if only. <laughs> I'm I'm just all distracted now by all these images that are like trying to like spot the AI art bits in uh Bigby's uh Glory of Giants. Oh yeah. And like it's just a game that I find myself playing all the time. Is like, you know, I've I've uh, I'm gonna be in a game of Spencer's D and D, and people have started uh, putting up their uh, character art for their characters to be like, this is gonna be my character. This is gonna be my character. And I just like every one. I'm like, is that AI art? Is that AI art? That looks that that thing looks a bit weird. Oh, that hand looks a bit weird. I don't know. Looks like AI art to me. Yeah, you know, we've, I mean, this, it was this year as well that you and I really started talking about using AI, uh, what what do you call them, like AI engines to generate different aspects, talking about using chat GPT to spruce up our, our campaigns and talking about using, you know, mid journey to generate character portraits. But uh, since then, I do still use those resources, but especially when it comes to art, I've really made more of a concerted effort to like keep working with the art so that it doesn't look like AI art, AI art very obviously. I'll use that as a basis, but then, you know, use a bunch of Photoshop and stuff to make it uh, look less obviously AI generated. Hmm. Yeah, I... Uh... I found for my World of Darkness game, I have to generate a lot of characters, a lot of NPCs. And so I had been using um, Hot Pot to quickly generate groups of people, which I would then screenshot their faces out of. In which case, I'm like, I don't have to worry too much about the AI artness of it unless somebody has a weird face, in which case I don't clip them. But like, you know, uh, just taking small bits of a larger whole uh worked for the like filling out that uh npc art for the game um but yeah it's uh i mean it's certainly not anything that i'd ever use commercially it's yeah, uh, yeah i mean i mean come just, on uh, like yeah i have no problem with using these things in in homebrew games and just like in my case, you know, I think for the sake of efficiency, me not having to draw every single character for one adventure that I'll run once, like that's really handy. But come on, if you're Hasbro and you got all that money, pay an artist, goddammit. But hey, you know, AI, the 2023, this is also, this was a real year of AI. It really it came to the forefront and... uh I think that's going to, I mean, obviously it's going to shake up like almost every aspect of our lives. I think AI is going to be everywhere now. And uh, certainly in terms of RPGs, there's a lot of potential there. Don't misuse it, everybody. But all I can think of is, uh, you know, you're saying 
how in Baldur's Gate 3 you can speak with animals and talk to any animal in the game. Man, I, I'm excited for the day when uh, AI is used for game NPCs and you can just talk to them about anything. It doesn't all have to be scripted. That's, that's an exciting prospect. It's going to make the, the game world feel so very real and alive. Um, yeah, I, uh, I don't know. I've, uh, yeah. Anything else about 2023 to cover? Nah, that's, uh, that's all the D and D stuff mentioned in this Gizmodo article, but, uh, it really did sort of take me back reading that and going like, Oh my God, like, yeah, what a year for D and D Baldur's Gate three D and D movie, OGL controversy, AI controversy, layoffs, Delayed product releases. It's crazy. It's just crazy that all of that happened all in the past year. The whole time, Renegade Games is just chugging away. Yep. <laughs> but yeah, so um, so there's our, our RPG news roundup for the end of the year. And uh, yeah, boss battle, you say? Yes, the Battle of Ashgrain Outpost is almost over. The party and their allies have launched their final assault on the keep, the last point of resistance. Cub, the bronze shadow dragon, has thrown the defenders from their fortifications using his repulsion breath. With the way clear for the attackers, the army has swarmed upon the keep. Stone giant allies smash down the outer walls, creating new entry points for the overwhelming assault force. Naturally, as elite agents of the MPOC, the party has been have breached further than any other into the keep during this final hour. They've discovered the lair of the demonic fire giant tyrant Lord Dengor. The mutant giant is prepared to face them with Azur minions and helmed horrors fighting alongside him. But past the giant and his allies, a passage leads to another magical circle which binds another group of serpentine creatures like the ones they liberated from the forge. And uh, so they decide to enter this area from the southeast to come in through cover. And I ask, uh, did Hex have anything whipped up to share with the party during their short rest in the armory beforehand? And Hex pulls out a pack of fine cheeses and jams and says, we'll have to eat with our hands, but it's better than nothing. And Jet says, you guys have been using utensils this whole time. <laughs> and uh, Hex says, I have a lot of people stuck in my claws right now. Better not to muddy these flavors. That Limburger was expensive. I just imagine um, Gent, you know, like, like when you give a bird a piece of bread, sort of tilting their head and nipping at it with the beak. Um, uh, so we roll initiative, uh, Hex gets an at one, uh, yeah, bad rolls for initiative all around, but, uh, Gent comes into the chamber hidden, uh, so they're invisible due to their shadow training as they, uh, like Gent sneaks in and is invisible, but as Hex and Connor attempt to sneak in, uh, one of the Azur points toward the corner they're entering from and calls for the Helmed Horrors to attack. The Helmed Horrors race toward them with mechanical determination. Each one wields a scythe in one hand and a shield in the other. Dengor himself comes lumbering behind this animated suit of armor. Stopping behind them, he roars some profane syllable, summoning a spirit weapon of his own, a massive spiked flail of boiling blood. 
Um, the terrible weapon thrashes into Connor's right side for a critical hit. No, it doesn't. It just looked that way because of Connor's cloak of displacement. Is the, the spiked says, flail of boiling blood from the seas of boiling blood? No, I don't think so. It's just a spirit weapon. It's just all cool. Oh, okay. Um, I want to give a shout out, though, to the original module that I was harvesting content for this uh, in the Sith Morcane Unbound because um, Lord Dengor, I didn't uh, change his name. Uh, in, in the original module, it's Dengor Bloodheart is the uh, fire giant that you got to fight at the end of this. And I just decided to keep his name Dengor. It's a good name. Dengor. Reminds me of Dengar from Star Wars. Yeah. The diaper head. Um, so Connor sidesteps that critical hit and Jen is impressed. Um, the Azur overseeing the serpentine creatures beyond the n northern passage back up slightly into the passage, but keep their attention on the bound slaves. Both overseers cast sanctuary on themselves as a protective measure. One of the Azur falling behind Dengor moves behind a pile of rubble before casting sanctuary on Dengor. The remainder of the Azur simply rush forward to follow the helmed horrors and their foul lord. And, uh... So Connor moves up a bit and then casts Dawn, catching Lord Dengor, the Helmed Horrors, and uh, the Azur all in one great radiance of Paylor. Um, the Helmed Horrors seem to push through the Dawn, ignoring it, but one of them is clearly glowing with searing radiant energy from the spell. Dengor growls, shaking off the pain of the spell, but one of the Azur does the same. The other two Azur are staggered by the sudden blast of light. And then it's Gent, and uh, Gent takes out their oath bow and aims at one of the Azur who is staggered by dawn. The flash of light followed by a bolt of shadow. It hits. Their bolt strikes the upper, ar the upper right thigh of the Azur, knocking it further off balance. Um... The Azur tumbles to the stone, burning out into a heap of ash and burnt armor. Uh, Gent then dashes up, and then it's Hex. Uh, so Gent uh, slips into a pile of rocks. Um, and for Hex, Hex moves up to the edge of the uh, Radiance of the Dawn, begins blasting at the Helmed Horrors. Uh, gets one of them in the left leg and the armor shudders as he fires into its left knee joint. He follows up with another shot, nailing it in the right shoulder. And then uh, for his bonus action, he rages. The spirits of Hex's old tribesmen rise up around him to join the fray. The clanking helm horror seems sluggish. Jet part due, their uh, second turn in the first round. Um... And so they uh, hide, but they realize that, he that the Helmed Horrors can detect them, but nobody else is paying attention to them. So they're successfully hidden. They manage to get a uh, Nat 20 on uh, the Azur that they're firing at. Inky black smoke rises from a hole that you just put in the Azur's midriff, clean through its torso. The Helmed Horrors race to engage Hexaquila. Hex dodges one slash, but... 
Then the whore repeats the motion with impossible speed and manages co to connect, dealing seven damage, seven slashing damage after reduction. The next Helm Horror manages to just barely slash the side of Hex's head for 10 slashing after reduction. The Helm Horrors then attempt to close in on Hex, but they flail ineptly in comparison to Hex's impressive gun foo. The mighty blood flail conjured by Dengor sweeps back and forth but fails to catch Hex in its arc. Dengor lays his mighty hand upon the Azur nearest him, heedless to the blazing fire coming off the minion. Suddenly, the Azur begins to burn blue. Dengor grits his teeth through the blaze of Palor's cleansing glare. The Azur overseers from, the pa from beyond the passage move further out, but remain crouched, watching their charges rather than turning their attention to the battle. Rushing out of the dawn, the blue Azur stands before a Connor, Wakazashi in hand. The Azur, the furthest back, meanwhile, begins coming around the fallen pillars to where Gent is positioned. On Connor's turn, he uses his bonus action to move the Dawn, uh, catching so that it stays on some of their opponents. And then he uses his action to summon the Golden Lions. So he uh, gets out the wondrous figures and summons two big Golden Lions to fight for them. Badass. Um, yeah, these have not seen action, I think, since they did the assassination of Lord Dio and they escaped on the back of the, uh, Golden Lions. So, uh, Gent, uh, attempts to target, uh, Dengor and, uh, target them as her, uh, sworn oath target of her oath bow by using pew 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 or action words um however dengor has sanctuary on him so they have to uh roll wisdom save they are yeah wisdom save they get an, an unnat 20 so shadow song seats out their target with unswerving determination despite the magical flames protecting the mad giant and Jank gets a nat 20 with the benefit of the Oath Bow and Sneak Attack because they were hidden. So Shadow Song seeks the Tyrant's Heart. Um, it, the total is 38 Pierce plus 72 Sneaking Damage. Truly a strike worthy of Song. That is Jent's turn, so we get back to Hex. Hex begins recklessly attacking the Helm Horrors around him, uh, starting with one that is not currently in the Dawn, and he gets a center mass blast, then another one, uh, and then he gets a shot directly where its head is connected to its body, decapitating the construct. Uh, as a bonus action, Hex swings his scimitar at another one. Uh, the Azur in front of Connor is no longer glowing blue at this point, um, the Held Horror takes the scimitar blow on its shield. The lions obey their commands, which are to attack the Helmed Horrors. The lions are unsuccessful. One is held back by the Helmed Horror's shield, while the other is simply too dazed in the light of the dawn to fight effectively. Unless ordered to evacuate the area of the dawn, the dazed one will fail its save, while the other will pass. The Helmed Horrors confidently stride out of the dawn's light to attack Hex, each provoking an opportunity attack from a lion. Unfortunately, neither are successful. Dazed, the dazed lion rolls a nat one, very much falling into character, while the other is unable to penetrate the construct's heavy armor. And Gent says, uh, the snark of falling into character really got me. <laughs> I say, uh... 
Hex is slashed across the arm for 11 slashing damage after reduction, but manages to sidestep the following blow. The next horror drives its scythe directly down into Hex's calf for a critical hit, but Hex practically shrugs off what would have hamstrung a lesser warrior, taking only 12 damage after reduction. Finally, a final strike to Hex's right wrist deals 8 damage after reduction. Dengor finds himself pinned under the blaze of Paylor's light. Unable to clear a path for himself, he strikes at the lions with his mighty greatsword. With trivial effort, the giant cleaves the dazed lion in twain. It becomes a small golden figurine on the ground, something far too minuscule for Dengor to notice himself. Reaching out, he brings his sword down on the other lion, slaying it instantly. Jen says, fuck. Dengor roars with fury, the path to Hex and Connor now clear. He seems to be shrugging off the glare of the dawn with distressing ease. Uh, I, and I, out of character, I, I had Alex roll Dawn damage on Dengor, and then I said, rolling DDD, Dawn, Dengor Dawn damage. Dangus. Ah! Hearing Dengor's roar, the Azur toward the back of the chamber now, cha chamber now come rushing to join the battle. Behind them, the glow of the magic circle and trapping the serpentine slaves still emanates. The Azur coming around the pillars toward Gent finally closed the distance, coming face to face with the one who sniped their master. Meanwhile, the other Azur attacks Connor. The Azur initially believes it has skewered Connor's left foot, but soon realizes he is not where, it's, where he's seen because of the cloak of displacement. Connor aims his combat shotgun at the Azur and pulls the trigger. Connor blasts the Azur in the right foot, twisting the narrative of the combat on the Azur. Um, Connor then summons his spirit shovel at level 4 and smacks the Azur with it as well cracks the Azur across the back the Azur coughs up what appears to be magma uh, Gent disengages aims at Dengor again and takes another shot the shot strikes for the giant's heart once more um, they struggled uh, because of the sanctuary they struggle to keep their hands steady and their eyes open as they fire but in the end their shot flies true Another piercing hit uh, for 50 damage total. Get back to Hex, who gets to Blastin, uh, and he gets a headshot, double taps the target. The Helmed Horror is fighting through a melted visor. Um, they nearly disconnect the hand holding the shield from the arm when it, with his, concentrated less, uh, his last concentrated shot. He uses an offhand swing with the scimitar, goes to cleave the construct's melted head, but it blocks the blow with its shield, weakly lifting to defend itself at the last minute. Helm Horror returns the favor, slashing at Hex's face and dealing 11 slashing damage after reduction. Uh, then it cuts Hex's right arm for 12 damage after reduction. Hex then takes a blow to the back of the head for 8 slashing damage, and another to the left foot for 7 slashing damage, all reduced. Dengor rushes forward, clapping his mighty hand on the Ezra in front of Connor and turning it blue again. Meanwhile, the blood flail strikes Hex, striking him in the side for 19 force damage. Dengor continues to resist Paylor's light. And then I have them roll DDD again. Boiling blood trickles from the wound in Dengor's chest. Connor kicks away the Azur's wakazashi as it haplessly slashes at him. Meanwhile, the other Azur rushes Gent, getting a 26 to hit with its wakazashi. Gent is slashed by the Azur's burning blade across their offhand, taking 16 slashing damage and 9 fire. And that brings Gent to 184 after temp HP. Connor is up next. And, uh... 
Connor pulls out the shotgun and attacks one of the Azer, gets a headshot. Connor blows the blue Azer's head off. Now it isn't blazing any color. Uh, he then uses the shovel to swing at Dengor. Shovel smacks Dengor in the junk. Ouch. Just clipped <laughs> it, which is worse, obviously, he says <laughs> out of character. Um... The Helmed Horror east of Hex looks like it shouldn't even be functioning, and Dengor is in much worse shape than he began. And uh, so Gent disengages and then uh, makes another attack on Dengor, but once again has to make the Wisdom save. And this time the burning ethereal flames around their target are too much. They are forced to avert their gaze. They may still choose another target, though, so they target one of the Azur. And uh, they pin the Azur in its right side. The Azur appears to wince. When they glance back at Dengor, they have no trouble looking at the fiend. So it re it reveals that the Azur that they just shot was the one maintaining sanctuary on uh, Dengor. Um, Hex takes the opportunity to shoot the giant and gets a nat 20. Hits him in the heart where Jen has already landed two shadow bolts. The giant clutches at his chest, screaming in agony. The next shot goes wide, but then another gets him in the left hip. Um, Hex action surges uh, for three more shots and gets a nat 20. I say heartburn. And uh, the giant sways on his feet, tilting to the right before righting himself. Uh, gets hit again. The giant is stumbling, worn down by the barrage of laser fire. And then the last shot, however, uh, or, or rather, sorry, uh, bonus action swing at the Helmed Horror attacking uh, Hexakila is blocked. Uh, another would-be headshot is blocked by the shield. The Helmed Horror continues to harass Hex from the side. He parries one blow with his scimitar, but the next strikes into his shoulder for 10 slashing damage after, after reduction. Then... The Helmed Horror behind him digs deep into Hex's back, dragging the blade through him for a critical hit and a hit, coming to 20 and 10 slashing damage after reduction, respectively. Then Dengor's Spirit Flail comes crashing into Hex's head for 18 force damage. Uh, Gent checks and Hex is at less than half health. Dengor lifts his huge greatsword and brings it down on Hex. Hex takes 24 slashing after reduction. Then the giant sweeps his blade low, but Hex leaps into the air, lands on the blade, and then deftly steps off of it. Dengor continues to ignore the pain of Dawn bearing down on him. We roll DDD once again. They realize that the giant is sweating. The Azur overseers that were initially hanging back to guard the slaves in the northern chamber finally reach Gent, moving to attack her from each t from either side, moving to attack them from either side. One cuts Gent across the left leg as it swings. Its huge greatsword blazes with fell energies. Gent takes 11 slashing, 3 fire damage, and 9 radiant damage, which they dodge. And... Uh, so a blazing demon greatsword cleaves into Gent's left side um, for a total of 69 damage, um, which could be nice. I mean, it's nice for nice. Dengor, I guess. Um, the final remaining Azur also slips into combat with Gent and gets another nat 20. 
Uh, Gent says, well, someone is disengaging and moving the fuck out. Luckily, the Azur doesn't have the same ability to imbue their strikes with extra power. Gent takes 27 slashing damage and 12 fire as the Azur cuts into them with their with its red-hot blade. Then it's Connor. Uh, Gent is down to 77 health total out of a total of... Uh, Gent is down to 77 health out of a total of 200 HP uh, maximum. Uh, having taken attacks at 69 and 39 damage respectively in their last turn. But... In fairness, they did take down half the master's HP very quickly with that spooky bow of her of theirs. Um, Connor uh, moves Dawn with his bonus action as he has been doing. Moves south of Dengor. Then he uses Channel Divinity to heal Gent up to 95 health and Hex up to 123, bringing Gent up to 172 health. Um, or or no, it, it heals Gent 295, not up to 172. It's just like it puts Gent at half health and Hex at health, half health as well. Um, but, uh, Connor points out to Chantel or Alex points out to Chantel still in trouble for now. Cause, uh, Connor's working with low spell slots. Less so on Gent's turn, which is next when, uh, Hex or when Gent disengages. So Gent disengages out of the dawn, aims at Dengor, uh, doesn't gets the wisdom save, but doesn't even need it. Fires on Dengor. Um, and they find the tyrant's heart and the shot flies straight through the giant's back out the front of his chest tearing clean through his burning heart he falls to the floor of the chamber and the whole room trembles Gent got him like Chantel's asking at this point did it kill him and I say Gent got him and uh, Gent says yes that will be my turn Hex is next Hex does some blasting Starts with the uh, Helm Tour that uh, shields the first shot. Then his next shot blows the thing in half at the waist. Moves on to the next target. Uh, he provokes to move out of the dawn. Uh, the Helm Tour cleaves into Hex's back as he goes, dealing 10 slashing damage after reduction. Um, I have everyone roll Arcana and Religion. And Gent, looking to the northern passage, sees that the glow of the magic circle has dimmed. Suddenly, the passage fills with the shape of the same serpentine elementals they encountered bound here before. Salamanders. I have everyone rule arcana and religion again. And I say, Gent, you suspect that the magic circle has come undone as a natural result of Dengor's death. If this is the case, it's very likely similar bindings will fail throughout Ashgrain Outpost. I have everyone rule persuasion. And uh, the salamanders don't take the time to observe the melee in the corner for long, but see Gent standing away from the combat. Gent is able to make clear through their body language that they are a fellow enemy of Dengor and his servants. Carving into Connor's left side, the remaining helm horror strikes him despite his displacement cloak. Connor takes 21 slashing and Dawn goes down. His concentration is broken. Uh, the great swords wielding Azur then chase after Hexakila. Gent says shit. 
Um, Hex deftly sidesteps their swings. The remaining Azure with the Wakazashi follows suit, but is similarly evaded. Uh, on Connor's turn, Connor shoots the shotgun, uh, firing at one of the Helden Horrors. The Helden Horrors' arm sways loosely after the blast hits. Then the Spirit Shovel attacks the same guy, whacks his head. Uh, sadly, the force damage has no effect. There's that uh, immunity to force damage on the Helden Horrors coming in again. Um... On Gent's turn, Gent says, okay, I got salamanders to the north and Azers to the south. And I say, but you get the sense that the salamanders are on your side. Or rather, they get the sense that they're on, you're on their side, but it works out the same, more or less. Gent aims their bow at any enemy that is adjacent one of their comrades, uh, attacking one of the ones east of Hex, one of the Helmed Horrors. Um and uh hits they catch they catch the construct in a critical weak point and it clatters to the ground inanimate then uh gent moves up and uses their bonus action to hide the azar seem way too preoccupied to keep track of gent now hex uh tries to deal with the great sword wielding azar gets a series of hits followed by a miss uh the salamanders come slithering out of the northern passage and uh Hex manages to dodge a great sword swing, but the next catches him in the chest. Uh, once again, these Azer, these Azer taskmasters charge their Odachi great swords with fell energies. Then the Wakazachi wielding Azer strikes Hex across the right leg for seven slashing after reduction and six fire. Um, Connor blasts the Wakazachi guy with the shotgun, uh, but it is shielded, unfortunately. Uh, using the spirit shovel, he goes to attack another one of them. Um, as the shovel strikes the Azur in the right side of its head, magma seems to leak from the gash. There's a wounded Azur with a great sword northwest of Hex, a wounded Azur with a Wakazashi south of him, and an unhurt Azur with a great sword to his west. So Jen attacks the one to the west. Lands a shot in its right side. The previously unwounded Azur costs fiery blood, twisting to look in the direction the shot came from and scowling. Uh, Gent moves around the boulder that she's hiding behind to try and hide uh, further. Um, <clears throat> they roll stealth and get a nat 20, and they say they melt into the stone. On Hex's turn, Hex continues blasting the Azur. Blasts one in the chest, uh, shoots another in the right leg, cleave the Azur in two at the waist with his scimitar, and take only one fire damage for his trouble. The procession of angry, liberated salamanders continues toward the melee, wielding two-handed curved swords ready for vengeance. The remaining Azur with the, with the Odachi slashes Hex's arm with another strike charged with evil power, dealing seven slashing after reduction, one fire and 14 radiant. The Azur with the Wakazashi, meanwhile, slashes through Connor's displacement cloak, cutting it into his upper right leg for 16 slashing and one fire damage after reduction. Connor... Returns the favor with a shotgun blast. The Azur grips his left arm, riddled with close-range shotgun fire. With Gent, there's only two le uh, targets left. One Azur with a greatsword and one with a wakazashi. So they move into position to hit the greatsword jerk. Their words. Um, the Azur spins to look for his attacker, leaving himself open to Hex. Uh, Hex blasts the greatswordsman. Uh, and the Azur taskmaster has a hole blown through him. Final target, 
The hex, uh, hex, uh, fires, hits the Azur in the right arm twice, then strikes the Azur's right leg out from under it. And then, uh, it falls to one knee, still functioning. But then the salamanders then pile in, in single file, each taking a turn at delivering a final executioner's swing to the sta staggered <laughs> nice. Azur. It's not till the fourth try that they get it, but it seems to be a point of celebration and pride for the one that lands the blow. Hex cheers a little. The fight is over. The salamanders look to them with respect and appreciation and gesture that they follow them back through the northern passage to where they were being held. The group follows along, and in the, pas in the chamber that would be Dengor's throne room, a morning star with spikes that twist out in all directions is set in the center of what was once the magic circle of binding. In addition to this morning star, the group each receive 1,000 gold pieces, bringing Jent's total to 25,804. Jen says, wow, funky weapons. Um, and Connor takes the Morning Star. Um, and I do the same thing where I just tell them what it is up front since it's the end of the op and they'll be able to get it identified immediately after. It's a plus two vicious Morning Star with the Flame Tongue feature that allows its wielder to cast the spell's protection from good and evil and sanctuary. Um, so after marveling at that little bit of treasure... With Dengor's keep taken, the battle for Ashgrain outpost is finally won. Morgwark personally comes and finds them when he is able, them being the party. Outstanding agents, out-fucking-standing. Good work, all of you. Along with the rest of the army, the group uh, regroups, witnessing the immediate aftermath of Ashgrain outpost's final capture. Together with Gog, Morgwar issues orders to secure the surrounding area. As the bulk of the Draelic forces rest and make camp in the newly occupied outpost, their brain cap supplies are replenished. Morgwar comes to the ar comes to the group in his armored car. Stepping out, he says, "She's all yours now. You earned it." And slaps the side of the armored car. Oh, and the supply truck driver Val. She says you can have her truck as well. The orc holds up sh two shiny keys. Hex grabs the supply truck key. Connor reaches out for the key for the armored car and says, I assuming you're, I'm assuming you prefer your bike, Jent. Jent says, yep. And finally, everyone receives 10,700 XP, bringing their new total to 337,975 XP. And um, I also uh, established that the mall that Connor found when liberating the other group of salamanders previously, uh, that mall is also a plus two vicious flame tongue weapon, but doesn't have the casting features that I mentioned. Um, uh, Hex says, interesting. Honestly, I'm most hyped for, ha for it having p uh, protection from evil and good. It means I wouldn't have to prepare it. Talking about Connor there. Uh, the sling Hex picked up in the cavern before the battle is a plus two vicious black spider silk sling, which has a minor overconfidence enchantment feature, similar to the confidence Gent experienced when attuning to the black ring of protection. And that's it. They won the battle of Ashgrain outpost. I was going to say, this is it. This is the big, the, the, the big end of the battle. Man. Yeah. And the end of the They're off as well. Just going their right? treasure at the end. No. No. They still have to take back uh, the mantle. Ah, right. That's the place where they, where they infiltrated the masquerade and they were having the racist masks and all that stuff. That's right. Bring it to the capital. 
But man, that was that was big. That really was quite climactic. Uh, it sounds like the players enjoyed it. Do you remember like the vibe? Was this a a big cheer moment as they wrapped it all up? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Um, it was definitely. It, it was also like our last big session before. Um, we took a bit of a break, basically. I was going to ask about um, that because this felt like uh, like one of those moments. It'd be good to sort of get it in before everybody takes some some time away from the game. Yeah, and you know what's funny? A little a uh, little note about this. So um, the next message that I have for the group. Um, is uh i i'm talking to Chantel after like a a few weeks break one of the things i mentioned is that i just started playing horror clicks with my friend mcgill oh my gosh yep yep we've we've gone all worm aroboros at this point we're, yeah, we're looping been, back uh, on well the beginning the of the the podcast Man, you know what a weird experiment would be, Tom? I don't know if there'd be any actual value or or anything gleaned from it, but it would be kind of funny to like try and synchronize these later episodes of the podcast with the earlier episodes of the podcast. What? Well, like, you know, we, I don't mean like literally play them side by side, but the events that are transpiring in the campaign now were transpiring at the beginning of the podcast, right? Like you just said the Yeah, theoretically something like that. It would just be it would be kind of funny to to line up the dates as best we could and then maybe like pair off the episodes, you know, listen to the early recorded episode of Compare and Campaign and then right after it listen to the more recently recorded episode where you cover the adventure that you were running like right around that time, just just kind of fold fold the timeline in half, as it were. It would definitely give insight into like when I started watching Band of Brothers and all that stuff. Well, and also just sort of compare how you were feeling about it then versus how you feel about it now. I'm sure, at least on one of those those early episodes, you probably said something like, "Oh man, I got this this big thing. You know, there's a big boss battle coming up." I wonder how my players are going to receive it. Now we know. Yeah, there's definitely stuff like that that's coming up in the podcast. Um, actually, coming up right next up, I think. Uh, a thing that I talked uh, with you about around the time that you were doing Verdant Apocalypse, uh, uh, like the end of Verdant Apocalypse, we had talked about the idea of introducing NPCs around a battle. And... Um, I'm pretty sure that that is going to become relevant, like, next episode, basically. Weird. That's weird. Neat, but weird. Or certainly soon. So, yeah, maybe we were covering Verdant Apocalypse around the time that I was running this. Well, we were definitely playing Horror Clicks. Yeah, I can confirm that. Cool. That's fun. So, McGill. So, Tom. Unless you had anything else for me about that big final battle. No, not really. Um, 
just seemed like a, a do you, actually here's a question for you do you remember how long the session took to run oh like multiple weeks oh wow like uh, well but what just for the battle like the battle of ash Green no i mean specifically this boss battle Oh, that boss battle was just one session. Yeah, but do you remember how long that session was? Was that like three hours? Was that shorter, longer? Um, I think it went here. Uh, oh, here. Uh, it oh, yeah, I guess you have it all time for... stamped. Yeah, uh, it went for about four and a half hours damn nice but satisfying it's very satisfying we started at we started at six and we ended at about uh 10 10 30 hell yeah it's like a hard one battle yeah nice uh, i i'm just glad we got it all into one session honestly um but yeah so um alongside my rpg news i'm doing i'm doing like a holiday thing i'm bringing a sampler platter little treats you can you can chew on each of these and uh next thing i wanted to mention tom is a friend of mine recommended a module for call of cthulhu that they found on drive through rpg i have not played this yet i've never in fact played call of cthulhu uh, but I thought that this had a pretty funny hook to it. And, uh, since I, I don't have the module and, uh, I haven't played the RPG, I thought just for, for fun as a short little thing, I'm going to start, uh, reading the description of this module to you and we'll see how long it takes for you to, to clue in to what this is. This is a modern day Call of Cthulhu module you ready for this it's a one shot and i'm trying to i just want to see like it you'll 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 get what i'm you'll get what i'm talking about as i describe this all right so here we go a group of all right a group of well-dressed criminals arrive at the docks after pulling off an extraordinary crime the plan is to sit tight until midnight when someone will arrive to ferry them and the loot across the bay to make a final delivery to the boss Sounds easy, right? But things take a turn for the weird. Strange things happen in and around the warehouse where they're hiding out. Things which make the criminals doubt the allegiances of their compatriots, their own sanity, and ultimately the very nature of reality. It's going to be a long wait for the ferrymen, and these criminals only know each other by their pseudonyms. Mr. Black. Mr. Red. Mr. So yeah, it is. Um... So this is a Call of Cthulhu module called Dockside Dogs, written by Paul Fricker from Chaosium Incorporated. And uh, the idea is that it is Reservoir Dogs, but the loot is a copy of The King in Yellow. Oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, that's really all I know about it, because, you know, I don't even have a Call of Cthulhu game that I'd be playing, so I haven't, haven't picked this up yet. But uh, I figured I should shout out my buddy Liz for recommending this to me. They thought that this was just super funny and, uh, and up my alley. So shout out to Liz. And uh, if you want to run Reservoir Dogs, uh, but with a Cthulhu slant, uh, check out Dockside Dogs, Call of Cthulhu on Drive-Thru RPG from Paul Fricker. 
this is, I, I got a follow-up, actually, a follow-up question for you, Tom, because we discussed this kind of thing recently when I was talking about everyday heroes, and you were talking about how, how like, uh, you know, sort of branded movie content doesn't necessarily appeal to you. What about something like this, where the setup, this setup is very obviously Reservoir Dogs, but... Uh, it's not doing, like, I wouldn't say this is doing, like, the full commitment to Reservoir Dogs. It's just sort of using the the plot architecture of it. Uh, does this kind of thing appeal to you? Um, honestly, it doesn't, it doesn't really jump out at me. Like, I, it's, it's cool, I guess, but it's not necessarily something I really go for. I mean... You you seem to be much more in favor of like sessions that sort of like have a bit of a gimmick to them, like or or not sessions, but like adventures that have a bit of a gimmick to them. Whereas like, how do you mean? How I, do you mean? I I, well, I was more with example, you on you sessions like, than than uh, than adventures. I don't know. What oh, do you mean? Well, I guess I was thinking of the the one with the backwards. The everything starts going. The the oh yeah yeah the backwards village yeah yeah backwards. Yeah, like that sort of that or one that's like Reservoir Dogs or one that's like uh, Home Alone or whatever. Um, yeah, yeah. You, I guess that is very true. Very true. More the case with the sessions one, but like a lot of the time, I just want like a generic fantasy quest that I can style to the setting that I want. Right. Yeah. Um, a lot of the time the work that I do creating a session would kind of like cover up the, the very like new, like, like the, um, the gimmick itself, like everything you're getting out of the gimmick would get kind of like diluted. I think once you put it into my setting, because then you're pulling it away from it's like, you know, it, it becomes less reservoir dogs. Once you put it in a setting and remove the reservoir dog elements, right? I'm with you. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Yeah, yeah. And uh, I can even I can even tell you why I tend to favor uh, that kind of adventure because I don't I didn't always do stuff like that. Uh, as time has gone on, and you can actually you could probably see this, you know, going back and looking at the campaigns I've described. But as time has gone on, I realized that something that just kind of bums me out is when there's a long pause uh, between sessions and people forget what happened last time, right? Especially if there's like a break in the middle of a quest or something like that, and then like a month goes by before everybody's available to play again. And then you come back and you spend the first hour of the session just recapping everything and bringing everybody back up to speed to where they were. And uh, that happened a lot when I would do campaigns where all the adventures were sort of linear and kind of flowed into each other, right? And uh, so over the years, I've come to favor more episodic storytelling. The idea where I'm going to tell a story and this this shorter story is going to wrap up by the end of the session so that if there's a break and we don't know how long it's going to be, 
when we come back, you know, maybe the the grand narrative of the campaign will need to be recapped, but nobody's going to be going like, oh, shoot, yeah, you know, how many charges of that did I have? Like, you know, did I prepare my spells for the day? We just sort of go like, okay, it's a new day, a uh, new adventure, and we can just sort of reset everything, you know, everybody's healed up, everybody's uh, can pick their new spells, things like that. And uh, ep when it comes to episodic storytelling like that, I don't know. I guess I think of things like like episodic TV shows or whatever. And so gimmicks do lend themselves to that. Like Reservoir Dogs, it's a nice self-contained little story. You could do that whole thing as a one-shot. It's intended to be done as a one-shot. And then at the end of it, like people will remember. They go like, oh yeah, there was that whole heist drama at the docks. But it won't be like, you know, we had to break halfway through and now everybody's got to remember who they think the mole is in their midst and blah, blah, blah. And the same with the backwards village adventure where it's like, it's funny, it's memorable, and you can tell the whole thing in about three hours and you don't have to worry so much about breaking in the middle. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think that's why I favor sort of gimmicky adventures. I mean, that is sort of like... Uh, like TV. I mean, the backwards village thing is directly inspired by an episode of Red Dwarf where they go to a planet where time moves backwards. So it is like by design, it's an episodic story. Um, anyway, so once again, uh, Dockside Dogs, Call of Cthulhu by Paul Fricker on uh, DriveThruRPG. I thought it was pretty funny. And uh, I hadn't considered it, but, you know, Reservoir Dogs is the kind of story structure that would be fun to to play around with for a short D&D &D session and probably work better as a one shot because then you really could, you know, assign at random ahead of time. Like one of you is actually a mole and it becomes sort of a an Among Us style uh, suspicion game, too. And then the last thing I wanted to talk about, Tom, uh maybe a good a good thing to sort of close out the year on even is uh, I've been thinking a lot about D&D &D settings. Uh, we've already mentioned like Planescape we mentioned uh, earlier on um, and the, there are a bunch of these on here and as I was looking through this list I found a list on cbr.com of the 15 best D&D &D campaign settings uh, and I was looking through these, and there are a bunch that I'd never heard of, a bunch that I knew very little about. And uh, I'd love to just go down this list and maybe get your thoughts on them. And uh, you could tell me, like, have you ever played or, or run a game in any of these settings? And, like, do you have a favorite among these? I know you tend to prefer, of course, to homebrew your own. Um, but uh, the settings of D&D, &D, it's like the, these different backdrops. I don't know. Uh, I find it interesting looking at these ones that uh, I hadn't even heard of. So we're going to start with the obvious one, Tom. Forgotten Realms. What do you think of Forgotten Realms? I'm running a campaign in Forgotten Realms right now. I mean, Forgotten Realms is uh, it's dope. It's got Baldur's Gate. Um, what do you think of Forgotten Realms? Uh, the, I like it because it is so known. Um, I even had a really great experience uh, a couple of weeks ago. One of my players in the Forgotten Realms campaign 
uh, messaged me and said, just, you know, remind me, the big city we went to, where was that? And I said, Waterdeep. And they go, yeah, Waterdeep. And then they sent me a picture. They were in a game store and they had taken a photo of the board game Lords of Waterdeep. And I was like, that's it. I, I like, I really like that aspect of it. I like how far reaching it is and how my players, you know, like I work for, there's a lot of original stuff that I put into this campaign, but I do work with all the existing texts as well. And now my players can sort of recognize stuff. They can, they can watch the D&D movie and be like, oh, Neverwinter. I remember Neverwinter. And it's just, it's, it makes Forgotten Realms feel very alive as a setting. It extends beyond just our game. It's out there in the world. So what's your favorite place in the Forgotten Realms? Uh, well, you know, I haven't been all over the Forgotten Realms. Uh, I haven't explored all of it. I do really like Waterdeep. Like, I really, I hope uh, we get another D&D movie and get to see Waterdeep, the, the jewel of the Sword Coast. I think it's a, a pretty cool uh, idea for Metropolis. I like the Yawning Portal Inn with its big well that reaches down into Undermountain. Um, lately, my players have been up in the Cormanthor Forest in the Dale Lands, and uh, I like sort of the idea of this like magical, this for ancient forest imbued with magic uh, on the the southern coast of the Moon Sea, across the water from Flan and uh, and and Melvant. Um, yeah, I gotta say, like, a lot of, I don't know, I think that Forgotten Realms, part of the goodwill it has built up with me is, like, particularly, like, the early Adventurers League seasons in 5th edition all sort of focus on locations that are very central to old, like, D&D video games. Yeah, like yeah. Games. Like, so Flan, Mullmaster, all those places, like, those really have, like, a history that, like, goes back to, like, old-ass games from the 80s and stuff. For sure. And, like, and, like you uh, said, you know, Baldur's Gate, like, obviously there's a new Baldur's Gate game that everyone loves. But I love that, like, it's Baldur's Gate. You can go way back to the first Baldur's Gate game, you know, from the what, early 90s, I guess. And uh, it still applies. Like, the lore is still there. Um, my favorite spots in Forgotten Realms, it's a bit of a toss up, but you know me, you know me and my, uh, Northwest corner of the map. Right. Right. Uh, I'm a big fan of Ruathime, Ruathim, uh, which, uh, or Turn. Um, so Ruathim, both these places are kind of just like, uh, D&D &D Iceland, Forgotten Realms Iceland. Yeah, uh, I'm, Ruthim. I'm okay. Yeah, Ruthem. Uh, I was tr I was trying to think because you said uh, northwest corner of the map, and I was like, that's the spine of the world, isn't it? Yeah, your uh, yeah Ruthem is uh, it's like directly west of Waterdeep. And then turn turn is uh... is that the one? Rocky Island. It's like up. Frozen far in the trackless sea. I don't know that one. I'm looking at my big map of uh, of Toriel here to to reference it. Map of Toriel. Yeah. Now I'm looking at. Now I want to look at it. Um. 
Yeah, because the, the the one, you know, I mean, here, let me, why don't I just send you the one I'm looking at? Because it's pretty comprehensive. Yeah. I'll see if I can find it. You are looking like northwest off the Sword Coast for these things. Yeah, the Ruritham is... Oh, so this isn't really on this. Uh, oh, oh, yeah, uh, I see. Um, so it's like Ruritham so is like Ruritham's directly there, west of but, Waterdeep uh, across the water. Turn, turn does not make it on the, this map. It's yeah, I can't find it anywhere. This is too far east. It's got the Sword Coast and everything. If if this looked further north and further west, then you would see Turn up in the top. Yeah, the top corner. This one is Icewind Dale, another classic. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, Forgotten Realms. Sounds like we're both in favor. Um Yeah, it's all right. What about Greyhawk? Greyhawk I'm not as familiar with. Uh I only really know from Greyhawk the stuff that you told me um Yeah, when I ran that Greyhawk in... campaign. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, my my experience with it is that it's kind of like a, in my mind, it's kind of like a lesser version of Forgotten Realms. It's much more typical high fantasy because it was like one of the very first D&D campaign worlds created by Gygax, right? And uh, it's very, very Lord of the Ringsy to the point where, haha, there's a whole city called Radagast that I made fun of. Um, I, I kind of feel like it's like the, it's like a foundation block. I don't know if I'd run another campaign in Greyhawk. I'd probably just take whatever I wanted from Greyhawk and transplant it to Forgotten Realms because I find Forgotten Realms just that much more lush and, and built out. Now, here's one for you, Tom. Uh, I've never played a game in this setting, but I've sure read a lot of books in this setting. Dragonlance. Yeah, I don't know too much about this one. Literally only know the books. Read a lot of Dragonlance books as a kid. Um, it's very... This is the... Like when, you know, the, the pillars of D&D are dungeons and dragons. And Dragonlance is all about the dragons. Um, the name is... Of... The map of... The map of the Forgotten Realms that I just sent you groups uh, Turn, Ruritheim, and Gondorlun all together. Oh, yeah. As these sort of in block 13. There it is. Oh, wait. Like, way out. Very sparsely populated area. It's like, what, six little islands in a vast swath of, of open water. Yep. Anyway, yeah, Dragonlance. Uh, the Dragonlance is a weapon used to kill e evil dragons. That much I know. And uh, it's got a lot of history. I didn't even know that. It's got a lot of history. Very dragon-centric. But I uh, never played anything in it. And it sounds like, sounds like one that's kind of fallen by the wayside. I don't know. Are they even making Dragonlance books anymore? I think so. Or are they doing it all in... Uh, are they all set in, in other D&D &D settings like Forgotten Realms, I wonder? 
No, they did uh, Dragon Lance Shadow of the Dragon Queen for 5e. Ah, there we go. This was last year. All right, so Dragon Lance does live on. There've even, you know, uh, there've even been some animated like direct to DVD movies. I know I've seen at least one of them. Here's another one for you, Tom. What about Council of Worms? Oh, I don't know this one. You don't know it at all? I don't think so. Man, oh man. Okay. Uh, this one, another one that I've never played, but I know it because it was released like right when I was getting into RPGs. So uh, my my buddy James, the guy who introduced me to Rifts and D&D, uh, he was talking all about Council of Worms because it was released in 1994. So it was like right when I was getting into D&D. But we never did play it. Uh, it's like a box set. And uh, the gimmick on this one is that everyone in the party controls a dragon. It doesn't have huh. traditional classes like rogue or paladin or anything. It's it's different colors of dragons. I don't know about so that. So like even more dragon centric than Dragonlance. You don't know about that? No, I mean having a color of dragon to save your class. Now we're starting to get into the Power Rangers stuff. <laughs> I guess so. I mean, D&D predates Power Rangers though. No, but it's like a thing of like, well, you're the the dragon colors don't correspond to the classes. No, they don't. You, it, I just mean that uh, what it, it's not saying that uh, that they correspond to the classes. It says that instead of the classes, it's different colors of dragon. So it's not like everybody has to have a unique color. It's just different different colors of dragon have different abilities, and you play as a color of dragon yeah. instead of. Uh, a PC with a class. I mean, it's a neat idea. It seems pretty far flung from Dungeons and Dragons, to be honest. Sounds almost like it'd be its own RPG. I guess it is. It is still dragons, though. Very dragon heavy. Um. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It says it, this article says it's wild D and D worlds like Council of Worms that explore dragons in a more intimate way. Than adventures like Rise of Tiamat, which just heavily feature the iconic creature type. Uh, so t Tom says no to Council of Worms. Council of Power Rangers, more like. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I I don't want to seem too down on it because in honestly, no, I'm a, like, you know, I like Grumpy Tom. It's okay to be down on it. <laughs> yeah, but you know, I'm. Like, if you asked me, hey, do you want to play a game where everybody's a dragon? I'd be like, yeah, okay. But you wouldn't want to run it. No, probably mm, not. Mm. Do you have any, like, sticking points beyond just sounds like Power Rangers? With the dragon yeah. thing? Like, you were, you were immediately sort of, like, cold on it. Like, oh, no, I don't like that. It was only what you said about how you have a color of dragon instead of a class. Ah, okay. Gotcha. I gotcha. just thought that was like, seemed kind of whack. Here's a setting that I had never heard of, but I think is pretty cool. Uh, I'm For this one, I'm going to read the description uh, in this list just so I, I get everything right because I wasn't familiar with it. It's called Ghost Walk. You ever heard of Ghost Walk? 
No. The Ghost Walk setting was released for third edition and features what appears to be one of the most conventional D&D worlds in the game, but there's a twist. In Ghost Walk, player characters come back to life if they die and can resume their adventure from the afterlife. Ghostwalk is designed to get around the dreaded problem of a player losing their character and needing to wait before they can introduce a new PC. The Ghostwalk world is fairly ordinary aside from that. Uh, it does feature a city built over a vault of souls, which could lead to interesting plot points. What do you think of that? It all, from the description, it almost sounds less like a setting and more like uh, an optional rule set that could be applied to a different setting, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It could be interesting. It doesn't seem like to, uh, it doesn't seem like too much to get my head around, you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, potentially. I'll have to, this is one that I, I mean, I think just the sound, the cool name of Ghost Walk and the idea of, uh, it almost sounds like if a character dies, they like concurrently run the adventure from the afterlife as well. I don't know. That intrigues me enough that I might look into this more and talk about it on a future episode. But this is one that uh, completely slipped by me. Um, there are a couple of, of settings in here that I didn't realize had been ported over to D&D. &D, and uh, I might as well... I might as well group them together. I think there's only one, two, there are three, three of them. Um, and we'll, we'll see, let's see if you've heard of these. Uh, Strixhaven. Yep. I just recently talked to somebody about that. Oh, really? That. What do you know about Strixhaven? Yeah. It's like Hogwarts? It is like Hogwarts. And, uh... The three settings that uh, I alluded to just now, um, they all come from the same place, Strixhaven being one of them. Do you know where it comes from? Is it Magic? Yeah, it's Magic the Gathering. I didn't realize that uh, they had ported MTG settings over to D&D. The other two being Ravnica and Theros. Yeah, Ravnica was the big one. And truth be told, there are more... Uh magic ports than that because there were a bunch of free uh 5e magic the gathering uh crossovers that they did in a series called um plane shift plane shift yeah um, well and it's so, funny because plane shift was a, a magic the gathering card set as well i feel like i've got i've got half yeah. the knowledge here i didn't know anything about these being connected to D. &D. um they right so plane shift uh we got plane shift zendikar plane shift innistrad uh plane shift kaladesh plane shift amonkhet plane shift ixalan and plane shift dominari oh wow i know all of those settings from from magic ixalan is the dinosaur one apparently they even put out an adventure for ixalan uh it's a jurassic park adventure seeing. Uh, it's called X Marks the Spot, a Plane Shift Ixalan Adventure. You know, I actually, I made, uh, I just made that joke where I'm like, yeah, the, you know, Ixalan's the dinosaur setting, so it must be a Jurassic Park adventure. They're, I don't even need to make that joke anymore. They are making literal Jurassic Park Magic the Gathering cards. Uh, a prison escape for an unlikely group of heroes turns into a race for an ancient relic sought by the Legion of Dusk. 
Can you brave the unknown and capture the treasure before the enemy does? Um, this is interesting. Note, no artwork, setting, or other material from the Plane Shift or other Magic the Gathering products is allowed in the DMs Guild Community Content Program. So huh. basically, you're allowed to do this for Wizards of the Coast, but you can't do it independently. Interesting. Huh. Yeah, the uh, the the overlap of potential rights issues, I guess, is a, a sort of interesting gray area when it comes to D&D &D and MTG. It's so funny because they used to be so precious about keeping the D&D &D and the magic separate and, you know, keeping things in their own lane. And now everything's just spilling over. But, but you know, we've seen that they've really gone all the way with magic with that. Yep. To a, a ridiculous extreme. It's like Fortnite up in here. It really is. Magic the Gathering has become Fortnite. Uh, since we're on the topic, I might as well cover the other two settings. There's Ravnica, of course which is like like D&D uh, &D or Magic Coruscant, basically. It's just a giant city, is Ravnica. There's... It's full of factions. Yeah, exactly. It kind of, it, it honestly, it kind of like bit the meal out of fucking Plane Shift's own uh, mouth. Because like, it is very similar in some ways to Sigil, I think. Yeah, yeah, very much so. 10 distinct guilds, all of which have a niche to fill within the city's economy and ecosystem. Uh, Ravnica provides new character options for players to explore related to different guilds, high magic world with lots of opportunities for intrigue. And then the other one on this list is Theros, which is uh, one of... Ancient Greece. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like Greek mythology, this one. Yeah. Um, I remember that book. I liked the the card set. Haven't haven't played the played it as a D and D setting, but uh, I, I really liked the Theros card set, and I could see how it would be pretty fun. You know, you play like a Spartan warrior type, fighting big dragons and things. So moving away from Magic the Gathering, back into more traditional D and D settings. Uh, here's one that I'm very familiar with, and I've never played it. Uh, it's a long-standing one. It's Ravenloft. Oh, yeah. Have you ever actually played a Ravenloft game, Tom? Not myself, no. I know Curse of Strahd is extremely popular. Yeah. Um, but Ravenloft goes way, way back. Uh, my Probably my most... Uh, I don't know, in-depth experience with Ravenloft is I used to have a, a video game, a PC game. I think it was just called Ravenloft or maybe Castle Ravenloft. And it came on those big retro floppy disks, the ones that were actually floppy. Let me see if I can find it. Well, you could get the Ravenloft series on... Uh... On, on Steam. Man, I could really... Okay, it was... Uh, it's this one. It's Strahd's Possession for yeah. uh, DOS. Uh, oh, uh, I can't even find the... I can't even find the one that was Floppies. Oh, here it is. Yeah, here's the one that's 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 IBM Floppies. Um, man, oh man. Very old stuff. 1994. Uh, I played that game. 
but uh, I've never actually played any any RPG set in Ravenloft. I'm surprised you haven't, though. This one seems like, you know, it's, it, uh, the the gothy horror, spooky monsters. It's got a vampire and a cape. Seem it's got some like cosmic I mean, horror. It's like I say, I'm pretty sure I said this last episode, but like the thing is, I got to out of the abyss for like doing the big adventures on my own, and uh, Ravenloft was the next one. Right, I just didn't make it. Right, that's right. I'm almost there. Just surprised that you've never even never even played in a Ravenloft game prior prior to now. Nope. Surprising. Nope. Uh Eberron. I ran a whole campaign in Eberron. Yeah, Eberron's okay. Eberron's interesting in that it like was conceived in our lifetime effectively. Yeah, and uh um, it, like a, a contest winner. Final Fantasy. Contest winner, which yeah. is pretty cool. Um I found the the setting for Eberron was really neat. I especially liked the Mourn lands, of course, the the like wild uh, magic yeah. wasteland. That was really neat. Very cool. Um, something that struck me a lot about Eberron when I was running that game was how well laid out details were about things like like weather and the calendar and like the 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 planets um it really felt like a complete world and the documentation on it had like almost like a nature study quality to some of it i remember i had like a whole uh eberron weather generator uh like online app that i was using so that you know you can set your region and sort of be like you know if anybody asks what the weather's like oh you know uh, the, there's mist coming in off the waterfront because it's this time of year like it was really well thought out in terms of its biology and its uh, ecology. You ever heard of Exandria? Yeah, that's the dingled uh, critical. That's one, right. It? It's brand spanking new. It's one of the newest settings in D anD. d There's one that you haven't mentioned yet that I'm surprised you haven't mentioned yet. Uh, oh, well, I might be getting to it, but do you want to mention it now? Uh, sure. It's Dark Sun. Dark Sun was actually the next one I was going to talk about. Hell yeah. The D&D take on an apocalyptic world. Um, it has, uh, that bug-like race. Not seen in any other campaign. What were they called? Thrycreen. The Thrycreen. And it's full of bugs, like the gauge. And uh, I don't know if I've ever told this story, Tom. This might be a piece of McGill's RPG history that has hitherto not been mentioned on the podcast. Did I ever tell you about my first exposure to Magic the Gathering? No, I don't think okay, so. Okay, so I can tell you exactly how... I first learned about Magic the Gathering. Uh, I I got into Magic the Gathering a couple years before D&D. Uh, so it came first. I was in a hobby shop. When I was in grade school, I used to love going to hobby shops, not because I played any of the games, but because I just loved the pewter figurines. I loved them. 
I loved look, okay. looking at the, the big cases they'd have of the pre-painted ones. I uh, just really loved those little figurines. And uh, I was in a game store just one day, you know, like there, we were in a mall and I went into the game store and by the cash, they were selling these these in-store made packets of just random trading cards, uh, just like CCGs, trading cards, uh, just a, just like jumbled together and you could get a pack of, you know, 15 random cards. And I think at the time it was like for 25 cents, you could get buy one of these packs. And I, on a whim, bought one of the packs in that pack were I think three or four Magic the Gathering cards and some of them were just like mana but there were a couple of actual cards in it and uh, I became immediately intrigued by that game and would go on to like buy some actual cards and learn how to play it um, and continue to play it through a lot of my life but also mixed in with those Magic the Gathering cards were trading cards for D&D and Dark Sun was one of them. And one of the cards was a Thrycreen. So, like, one of oh. my earliest exposures to D&D, even though I didn't get into it at the time, was through Dark Sun, the Thrycreen, and through through trading cards, of all things. Not even the RPG itself. That was, like, little did I know that buying that little packet of cards was the point of origin for a whole bunch of hobbies that uh, I, like... It's been it's been a little while since I played Magic the Gathering, but you know our, our friend uh, friend Den Vince Nitro, who composed our theme song, he came to visit me over the summer, and we played Magic the Gathering while he was here. So so it stretches on even to this day. That one moment, little did I know, it would inform so much of my life. And yeah, Dark Sun, uh, the post apocalyptic D and D world. I've never actually played a game in it. Have you? Um, I had a, a friend, um, I, I had a friend who had a lot of Dark Sun content in his D&D game, so I played a little bit of stuff like that. Um, there's some crazy stuff about, like, uh, like, you become, uh, you're a sorcerer king and you become a dragon by like sacrificing a thousand people or oh, something wow. insane like that yeah it's so crazy that's nuts um this seems to be one that like has basically been dropped there are no there's no 5e materials for dark sun i mean i'll tell you this is that um there may not be an official book for it but uh in princes of the apocalypse the elemental evil book for um 5e right yeah that has in it's it's appendix c is adapting to other worlds uh, oldest creation yeah. itself, Elemental Evil, has arisen in a thousand different worlds across the ages of the multiverse. Princes of the Apocalypse describes the rise of Elemental Evil in the world of the Forgotten Realms setting. However, there's no reason you couldn't adjust this adventure to fit in almost any world. That is a part 
that is a part of the Dungeons and Dragons multiverse. In this appendix, we take a look at how you can adapt this adventure to some of the well-known settings for D&D game or to your own campaign world. And it should be noted, this was the f- second published adventure for 5e. Mm. The worlds they list are Dark Sun, Dragonlance, Greyhawk, and Eberron. Well, there we go. Wow. And your own world is the last one. Huh. Man. I gotta look into Dark Sun more. Seems cool. Um. Yeah. There's a bit of, like, really cool what if this adventure but in Dark Sun art. Uh. But yeah. Here's another setting for you, Tom. This one I hadn't heard of. The Radiant Citadel. That's a new one. Yeah, yeah. This is another recent one. A massive, diverse city carved from the fossil remains of a creature in the ethereal plane. A world co-founded by many civilizations. It's funny because when this one came out, it was another thing of me being like, Man, I guess we're just never getting Planescape because surely if they were going to do this, they'd just do Planescape. Right. But uh, now they've done Planescape, so who knows? And it seems like what I gather for the Radiant Citadel is that it's almost like it's designed not necessarily to be an entire campaign setting, but to be like a waypoint that you can insert into a hub, yeah, a hub that you can stick into other campaigns as well. Could be neat. I like a big. Seems like a like a whole city of uh, that goblin market from Hellboy Two. Oh yeah, I can get behind that. But then, but then, what's Sigil supposed to be? Well, I mean, that's a very good question. Um, Planescape is going to be the last one I list. So, so before I get to that, here's one more for you, Tom. Spelljammer. Spelljammer, hippo people, hippo people, big ships in space. Yeah, everything's and every planet's just got a little shell around it. Yeah, and the ships are alive. You you grow yourself a spelljammer from a little larva. I'm not sure I even. Knew oh really? That. Uh, yeah, the ships are alive and they feed on things like heat. Uh, it reminded me a lot of like uh, like Farscape. You know, yeah. Or or maybe uh if you if you're feeling a bit cheesier, uh Lex. Yeah, Lex. <laughs> Give me that Warframe flavor. Um I've never I, I'm pretty familiar with Spelljammer, at least the older versions of it. Uh I hear the new one is not especially good. I didn't read any particularly good things about uh the updates. What do you think about Spelljammer? Uh, I mean, it's a cool concept. Uh, I've definitely seen spell jammers used in a cool way, but I've never, you know, this is another one of those things where it's like, is spell jammer the setting or is spell jammer just a thing that you can have in D and D because I've seen it more as the latter. I I think Um, it's both. Uh, I think, I think the idea is that you can. You can stick Spelljammer into your D&D campaign and then the players travel out into space and then you can make Spelljammer the setting as well. 
I guess something that I think is is pretty cool about about Spelljammer, just like the fact that it exists, is it answers a question that you never really knew you had about D and D. It's 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 almost like the same, you know talk about Lord of the Rings, of course, big influence on D and D, but you never really think of like in Lord of the Rings, what's out in outer space when the hobbits look up at the night sky, like what's out there. Is it the same universe that, that we live in? Is it a totally different universe? Like, what is out there? And uh, it's the same kind of thing in D&D, where you might never think, like, okay, but what's in outer space in D&D? Well, it's, it's cool that they answered that. You can find out. Get yourself a Spelljammer ship and head out to wild space. I appreciate that. But you've never actually played any any Spelljammer. Not really, no. All right, and the last one is the big one. Planescape. And this is one that, like, I know so much, you know, from the video game, but also from, like, the world created in the, in the rule books and stuff. And yet, like... You know, I've had Planescape stuff in my game, but I've never really played Planescape. Mm -hmm. And as you were saying earlier, like, there's a new edition of, of Planescape that came out, right? And it was just kind of met with a who cares. Yeah, I mean, to my surprise, like, they had videos with Brennan Lee Mulligan talking about how great Planescape is. And, uh, yeah, I feel like people are just... You know, the people who are going to get it are going to get it, and then the other people are just going to play something new, I think. The, now, nowadays, uh, the people who aren't going to get it are going to invest in Kickstarters for a billion different new RPGs. Would you ever play in a Planescape campaign? Oh, hell yeah. Right on. Totally. Do you know anyone who has run a Planescape campaign? Not per se, not that I know of. So, uh, so I'll say this, because um, we, a little while back, you and I were talking about Planescape, and I, I kind of got my wires crossed in talking about Numenera, right? Numenera yeah. is like a like a, a spiritual successor to Planescape. It's not actually, uh, it's not actually Planescape. Have I got that right? You're getting a bit mixed up. So, Numenera is a whole other role playing game system. Yeah. Made by Monty Cook. Creator of Planescape. Um, yeah. Um, but their only connection really is through the video games. Right. Like, Numenera, Torment Tides of Numenera, the video game based on Numenera, that is a spiritual successor to Planescape, Planescape Torment. Torment. But, yeah. but Planescape... And Numenera are two completely different RPGs themselves. Yeah, I would say Numenera is a whole... It's totally its own thing. Numenera is crazy. I have played in a Numenera game. <laughs> so that I have played. But I've never played in a... You got your ciphers and all that yeah. stuff. But I've never actually played uh, in a Planescape game. Did you ever go and fight in the war that happens where time is all fucked up so like you take a hill and then the next day you got to take the same hill no we didn't play uh we didn't play through that uh most of what happened in the 
the short campaign that I played in is we were we were exploring these ancient like overgrown ruins that we had found. We had to like cave dive down into them and uncover their history. It's funny, I say that thing about the the war where time is all messed up. I don't even know if that's a direct Numenera thing or if it's just in <laughs> Numenera Tides of... Uh, Torment Tides of Numenera, but, you know, whatever. It's the kind of thing that can happen. In Clearly, there. Numenera is, is a confusing setting all around. Oh, it's pretty wild. It's pretty great. So that's the big list that I found on CBR.com of the best D&D campaign settings. And uh, it sounds like a lot of these... Uh, you've never played in Tom. The, the majority, neither of us have actually played. Uh, if you, yeah, and I mean, the fact is, once I get into them, I'm probably just gonna like harvest them for material yeah. and then keep running my own game. Um, but but here's here's my, I guess a, a final question for you then is uh, having heard about all of these, if you had to pick one of these settings that you haven't run a game in to run a game, what would it be? Um, Planescape? I mean, it's it seems a bit unfair to say because my next one is going to be Ravenloft. Oh, well, there so we go. I almost want to say Ravenloft because um, that is the next one I'm going to mess around with. I mean, with. hey, fair enough. But I don't know. Maybe Planescape. Maybe Radiant Citadel. Who knows? Maybe Ravnica. I, I've got no idea. And I... They're all equally interesting to me except for maybe Dragonlance. Mm. Fair, fair. Not a huge fan. Of, n never found Dragonlance all that enticing. Uh, I would say that uh, the two from this list uh, that I hadn't heard about prior, or or that I didn't know much about prior, that I would I would look into more are Ghostwalk and uh, and Dark Sun. I, I want to read up more on Dark Sun now that I've actually uh, taken a look at it. Oh man, watch out! Fight the Gaj, a big psychic beetle or something. <laughs> See, that's fantastic. Why don't we have one of those in every setting? Yeah, a creature of unnatural beauty and terror. The Gaj is a powerful psionic creature that has been a staple in arenas across the tablelands. Nice. Well, I think that's that's it for me, and I, I think that that's it for the year. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, what is an Athazan dragon? Uh, Athazan dragon. The dragon of Tyr is a creature failed, feared by all Athazans. Athasia is the Dark Sun world, right? Uh, I think so. Yeah, here we go. Um, a reptilian beast that leaves death and destruction in its wake. It visits the city-states every year, claiming a levy of a thousand lives to fuel its powerful spells. While legends speak only, while legends only speak of one dragon, in truth, Athos has several powerful villains undergoing or seeking to undergo a metamorphosis that culminates in dragonhood. Athasian dragons are arcane spellcasters and psionic manifestors. The majority of known dragons multi-class as wizard scions, while others live as psychic warriors. It is not unusual for an Athasian dragon to possess levels in other classes that augment its already impressive mental abilities. The quickest path to dragonhood involves taking levels in the Cerebromancer prestige class. 
Powerful beings who scheme and work to achieve more power. The existing Athasian dragons guard their positions fanatically, and upstart fledgling dragons rarely risk attracting their wrath. Occasionally, an Athasian an dragon manipulates adventures to fulfill its goals, or sometimes it does so simply to amuse itself. To qualify to become an Athasian dragon, a character must fulfill all of the following criteria. Race, any living humanoid. Alignment, any non-good. Skills, knowledge arcana, 24 ranks. Knowledge psionic, 24 ranks. Feats, epic spellcasting, great fortitude, and two metamagic feats, and any two metapsionic feats. Spellcasting, must be able to cast 9th level arcane spells and manifest 6th level psionic power. Special, must perform a ritual that requires a sacrifice of no less than 1,000 hit dice of living creatures and wow. 50,000 gold pieces. So, there's dragons in Dark Sun, but they're really bad dudes. I'm down with that. All dragons are evil people who ascended to become dragons. Just, uh, just having having dragons be like significantly powerful in in that kind of wild godlike way. Uh, certainly, certainly more down with that. It's kind than, of a Kira. It's certainly more down with that right. than having everybody play a dragon. Yeah, I. I just think it's it's kind of mm -hmm. like Akira, you know? It's like you you psionically evolve into this monster, and that monster, that's what a dragon is. I think that is really cool. So that's that's one of the things I know about Dark Sun. I know about the Gaj. I know about Athasian dragons. And they're not good. <laughs> they're, that, that thing about any non-good alignment is very, uh, very clear. Uh, so... That's been episode 174 of Comparing Campaign. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, see our show notes, or, or no, if you want to get in touch with us, follow us, or see when we post new episodes, check us out on Comparing Campaign on Facebook. But if you want to see our show notes and supplemental materials, check us out on comparingcampaign.wordpress.com. Uh, uh level up get that year-end ding see you in 2024 don't steal a thousand hit dice worth of life or you'll be a haunted athasian dragon that has got to be your new catchphrase no <laughs>